0: Lost hope
1: everybody. How you doing today? We got a lot of breaking news, man. They're trying to give me a heart attack with all this last-minute stuff that they're throwing at me, but I am somewhat prepared. I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, but we got the gist of it, so I will do the breaking news segments for you. We got Supreme Court stuff coming out. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll leave with that. Then I will be talking about the story that blew up, the cancel culture letter... Uh, We'll dive into that. Then we have uh, Trump being compared to Reagan and what uh, a bunch of Republicans against Trump are going with. Um, We also have Trump. He actually flipped his position on the Confederate flag, which is somewhat surprising to a lot of people. But we will dive into that. That'll be interesting. And yes, 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 my favorite story of the day probably is... Kanye West and his interview with Forbes about his presidential platform, it is absolutely, positively hilarious. You do not want to miss that. So, a lot of stuff to get to today. I got more stuff than usual, so I'm going to go ahead and just jump right into it. Um, All right, let's get started, and uh, I'll do that with the breaking, breaking news. Okay, so news uh, just broke about 10 minutes or so ago, which means I didn't have time to go through the entire decision yet, Um, but I get the gist of what happened here. So there were what looked like contradictory headlines about the Supreme Court case on Trump's tax returns. One headline from the LA Times says, Supreme Court deals Trump a defeat, upholds demand for his tax returns. That's one headline. Another headline from the Associated Press says, Breaking, Supreme Court won't allow Congress to get Trump tax and financial records for now. So when you, when you read through it, and again, I didn't have time to go through the entire thing, but you know, just the gist of it here, um, apparently what happened is the Supreme Court said, no, Congress, you can't have his tax returns. What's their reasoning? No idea. But they say, oh, the New York Attorney General can, because apparently... There were lawsuits, or you had both Congress and the New York Attorney General trying to get him to release his tax returns, Um, but the Supreme Court says the New York Attorney General can have access to Trump's tax returns, but they say that it, quote, probably will not be released to the public. So Congress can't get it, the New York Attorney General's office can get it, but, quote, it probably won't be released to the public. Seems like a very confused decision. What they did is basically punt on the issue, and I think they sent it back to a lower court as well. Now, listen, what this is, is honestly probably an attempt to make it look like they're not siding with Trump while sort of de facto siding with Trump. That's what it strikes me as. So this way, they get to maintain the veneer of independence and say, no, 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 we didn't side with him. But functionally, effectively, the court did side with him because now, if it is going to be released, it's likely going to be after this next election. So he would get to, you know, finish out this term without having his tax returns released. Now, the implications of this are are really more extreme. and, and more scary because now you've set the precedent that somebody running for president or somebody who is president, that they don't have to release their tax returns. Previously, it was just like customary and it was tradition for people running for office to release their tax returns, basically to show the public, like, listen, I got nothing to hide in terms of, you know, financial crimes or what have you. No, here's, you know, the amount of money I made, here's how I got my income, so on and so forth. Um... But this lays the precedent of a president doesn't really have to – doesn't have to release their tax returns, which means now I would assume that moving forward you're going to have more presidential candidates and potential presidents not release their tax returns because now they know they could get away with it. Now they know that all you have to do is, you know, ignore the media pressure and just refuse – And remember Trump's lie? He used to say all the time, I'm going to release it, it's going to be tremendous, it's going to be incredible, but I'm just waiting for them, I'm going through a routine audit, and as soon as the audit is over, then I'll release it. Whatever happened to that? You said a thousand times, oh, it's uh, because I'm getting audited, and then he never released it. So that means it was a BS line, he wasn't withholding it because he was getting audited, he was withholding it because he didn't want the public to see what's in his tax returns, and listen guys, this is one of those areas where I don't think it's at all conspiratorial to speculate... There's a lot of questionable stuff in his tax returns. Putting aside all the you know conspiracy theory nonsense about Russia Gate and he's Vladimir Putin's puppet, so on and so forth, Donald Trump is a dirty businessman. Let me tell you something. As a New Yorker, I know this better than anybody, you are not able to do business, especially when it comes to real estate in New York City in the nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties without mafia connections, without mob connections. We've covered stories of you know some of Trump's hotels overseas there was detailed reporting on how a lot of it was a front for money laundering so how much is he involved in the world of organized crime i think to some extent you literally have to if you were in real estate in new york city in the 1980s and 1990s that's really uncontroversial to say. so you know to some extent he's had connections with organized crime to some extent I'm sure his properties and his businesses have been used in a sketchy manner. You know, another thing he does is absolutely loads up a lot of his properties. Like, he'll borrow from the bank a tremendous amount of money, and then he just doesn't pay the banks back. And then he needs more money to keep everything functioning, so then he goes to questionable sources to get that money. He has taken loans from questionable characters, and this is what we know of. He's still massively in debt to corporate America. And that you know, could explain one of the reasons why he, he was willing to turn over the keys to the kingdom, to like Goldman Sachs, to, to craft the tax plan that he implemented in 2017. He gave these financial institutions everything they want, deregulated them like crazy. Probably because he, he's also in personal debt to them, as well as, you know, there was the standard political transaction stuff, the, the open bribery that went on, like, for example, the predatory payday loan industry gave him a million dollars for his inauguration, and then he turned around and scrapped the rules that were just about to go into effect to regulate them, and he dropped the, the U.S. government court cases against the predatory payday loan industry. So, listen, it's just now you've set the precedent. The precedent is the president does not have to release their tax returns, so they're more likely to not do that, which means on top of the traditional avenues of bribery and corruption that we have of campaign contributions, now you have another avenue, the avenue is personal corruption, literal, like, quid pro quos, put the money in my bank account, and I'll do X, Y, and Z for you. So that's where we are. And the Supreme Court, with a really weaselly decision, I'm getting sick of these weaselly decisions. Like, just take a stance. Take a stance. If you're going to say, don't release it, then just side with Trump. No, they did the middle path. Oh, we're going to send it back to a lower court. The attorney general could see it, but, you know not Congress or maybe not the public. And So anyway, this stuff is ridiculous. But um, there you have it. And Trump is too dumb to know that this kind of helps him, this decision. So he's out there tweeting as if he lost, because I'm sure he saw some of the headlines that say, oh, Supreme Court deals Trump a defeat, upholds demand for his tax returns. When you read the details, not really, but he's out there and he's tweeting like he lost and he's angry. And it's like, not necessarily, bro. I don't know what's going on here. You just probably didn't learn anything about their actual ruling. So, but anyway, what else would you expect from Trump? That's uh, the breaking news there, that um, Trump can kind of de facto still hide within his tax returns, which means, you know, transparency is destroyed yet again, and you lay the precedent of personal corruption, which will probably be a much even bigger issue moving forward. All right, next. And I got this one right here is another Supreme Court decision that came out the day before. We're going to go through the Supreme that Supreme Court decision. Let's do it. Here we go. So we have another Supreme Court decision here. Um, you know, we had gotten lucky with some of the earlier rulings, the DACA ruling, which was like a temporary win for the left, but that can, if the paperwork's resubmitted and if they give the Supreme Court a better reason, then the Dreamers are at the whim of uh, Trump, the Trump administration. So that's only a temporary win for the left. I think it was a, a long-term win for the left that, you know, that the LGBTQ community is now protected under non-discrimination clauses. That was a legit win. Um, But now, the losses are rolling in, one after the other after the other. And this one's really bad. So, Vice News reports here, breaking, the Supreme Court just ruled that employers can deny birth control to workers for religious or moral reasons. So, let me explain this a little bit to you. Under Obamacare, birth control was covered. So it's covered as, you know, part of your employer plans. Basically what Obamacare did is they got rid of, like, the bare bones basic plans where, like, you know, you pay a very tiny amount per month, catastrophic insurance it was called, and, like, basically you're only covered if you're, like, about to die. (laughs) That, That was, like, the catastrophic plans. The Obama administration looked at that and said, okay, this is, um, this is just a scam. Like you're just robbing people and you're not actually providing insurance, but you're charging people money. So this isn't really coverage. So they banned those catastrophic plans and they basically forced the insurance companies to cover more stuff. That was one of the parts of Obamacare that's great, along with the you know, pre-existing conditions uh, protections, along with kids being able to stay on their parents' Health care until they're 26 years old, along with 80% of the money that goes to health insurance companies now has to be spent on health care. Before, you had crazy ratios. Some companies, it was 50/50, 50% of the money for overhead and nonsense, and 50% for actual care. It was abysmal, it was a terrible industry. Obamacare only made it slightly better, um, but there were some things that made it better. Well, one of the things is, um, under Obamacare plans, you had birth control was covered, full stop. Now There were a bunch of lawsuits over this because what happened was you had, um, like the Hobby Lobby case. Remember the Hobby Lobby case? The idea is what if you have a business where the owners are very religious and they provide health insurance to their employees, but they have an objection, The, the employer has an objection to birth control. What do you do in a situation like that? Because they argue, well, I'm paying for this. I'm paying for the birth control, and I'm against birth control, so I don't want to pay for the birth control. So, no, the government cannot force me to pay for this birth control through this health insurance plan for my employees. So that's basically the argument. Now, we had one previously on this issue, but now the Supreme Court just ruled that employers – can deny birth control to workers for religious or moral reasons. So think about the precedent that was just set here. The Supreme Court is saying it's okay to get in between your worker and their doctor. See, when you talk about Medicare for all, single-payer health care, there's nobody to get in between you and your doctor. You get to make every decision, and the doctor is going to, you know, take care of you the proper way. With this insane private for-profit health insurance racket, this is the opposite of freedom. This is tyrannical. Why should a third party have anything to say about what what you and your doctor are in favor of? Why should they be able to get in between you and your doctor? And think about the logic of this, guys. So what if you have an employer who's massively, colossally anti-vaccine. Now, this isn't some theoretical thing here because there are plenty of hardcore Christians who are anti-vaccine. There are plenty of ultra-Orthodox Jews, for example, who are anti-vaccine. This is like a common thing among religious fundamentalists, is they're against vaccines. So what if you have an employer who's like, I'm against vaccines, I refuse to have my money go towards vaccines, so yeah, I give my workers health insurance, but I am I don't want any birth control, I don't want any vaccines. Under this logic, you know, you have to let them deny vaccines to their workers because they have a personal religious objection to it. We have these, like, weird carve-outs in the law to bend over backwards to let religious fundamentalists get away with whatever the hell they want to get away with. Like, okay, why not take this to its logical conclusion? There are some religions that still believe in some sort of human sacrifice, or at least animal sacrifice. Should you allow them to get away with that? Because, you know, hey, it's their religion, so who are we to say? Our our silly secular laws against murder don't apply because it's a religious ritual they're doing, so therefore it's okay. There were previous Supreme Court cases on this when it came to, um, I believe it was Native Americans who they smoked peyote as part of a religious ritual and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that because we have secular laws against smoking peyote, so you don't get to say, oh, it's just my religion, and then you override the secular laws. You can't do that. Well, now this is the exact opposite of that. You can override a secular law because you personally are against birth control. By the way, who cares if the employer's against birth control? It's not your health insurance. Oh, yeah, but I'm providing it to... I'm providing it to, the, to the, my workers, so therefore it's mine. No. If you compensate your workers with money and they go and buy something that you might be against. So let's say a worker goes out and buys a sex toy or something, and the hardcore religious owner is, you know, they have a, a personal, moral, religious objection to sex toys. Is the owner allowed to say, whoa, 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 don't spend that, on, don't spend that money I just gave you on sex toys? They have no say in it. Because why should they have anything in it? Once you compensate them, that's their money. Once you give them the health insurance, that's their health insurance. So it doesn't matter what they're getting treatment for or what is going on between them and their doctor. You no longer have a say. That's their business. If you don't like birth control, then you don't get birth control. If you don't like vaccines, then you don't get a vaccine. You can't stop them. getting a vaccine or getting birth control or taking the money that you gave them and then buying a sex toy or whatever it is, the logic of it makes no sense unless you're just bending over backwards to carve out special exemptions for religion and beyond that, give the boss way more control over the workers' lives than should ever be the case. You know, this this has always been the problem with traditional, um, you know, anarcho-capitalism. Or, you know, today, like, hardcore libertarianism, as it's called. The idea that, like, oh, the free market is the best. Because what the libertarians don't understand is, yes, they get that the government can be tyrannical. And they overstep their bounds. And they're against that form of tyranny. What they're not against is private forms of tyranny. When you look at a company, it's a little tyranny. Because you have a rigid hierarchy in the company. You have the owner, who's, you know, at the top of the food chain here. And then you have, you know, somebody underneath them, some sort of CEO or manager, they're next in command, and you got the workers underneath them. So libertarians understand that it's tyrannical for the government to tell you to do all these things, right? They, they don't, the government forcing you to do something is unacceptable, but for some reason when it's a private company and there's a rigid hierarchy and they're controlling your lives in very direct ways, making you do many things that you necessarily don't want to do, controlling the kind of medicine you can take and stuff, All of a sudden, that form of tyranny is okay just because it's under a different name. It's under the name of a private corporation. Therefore, the tyranny is fine. And people can bark orders at you. And people can control your life directly with medical decisions. Do you not see how that's a form of tyranny? And in this case, religious tyranny? I mean, it's it's comical. It's absolutely comical. So, no, your boss should not have this kind of control over your life. I mean, your boss is is making personal medical decisions for you because they have an issue with it. No, once you give them that health insurance, you got nothing to do with it. You shouldn't have anything to do with it. That's their health insurance. Just like when you pay them, they could do whatever the hell they want with that money. That's their money now. So, I mean, this is, this is what happens when you get an overwhelmingly conservative Supreme Court. And by the way, don't ever expect consistency either when you talk about these issues because this was like Antonin Scalia, the very famous far-right-wing Supreme Court justice who's hailed as this, like, brilliant intellectual, he contradicted himself all the time, all the time. He would go back and forth on the conservative position of states' rights nonstop. He did it when it came to states legalizing marijuana. He would say, oh, no, no, no. See, the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution means the federal government overrides the state government, so therefore the federal government says marijuana is illegal, so the state governments can't make marijuana illegal. Okay, well, that's a contradiction to his position on the case involving immigration, where Arizona wanted to build their own border wall, and the federal government said, you can't do that because that's our job. Our, you know, We control the national border. We're the national government. And Anthony Scalia said, no, Arizona absolutely can build their own border wall because of states' rights. So they get to make whatever decision they want to make. Wait, which is it? You just said with marijuana, no states' rights, the federal government overrides it. But with the border, the federal government doesn't override it, and they have states' rights. Which is it? Just, they, it's just whatever they personally believe in is what they'll then rationalize on. Like, that that's what it is. It's, I think X, now I'm just going to come up with some sort of highfalutin-sounding rationalization to get away with it. Like, that's what that is. And so here we have, you know... It's just, it's the best argument for a single payer I've ever seen. <laughs> because who the hell wants their boss getting in between them and their doctor? Who wants their boss determining what's allowed in their health insurance? Who wants that? Nobody wants that. Get your hands off, get your hands out of my personal life. And I think most people could understand how absurd this is. And most people are going to go, wow, if only we could craft some sort of system where a third party can't butt in and determine what I can and can't do. That system does exist. It's called Medicare for all. And uh, under a system like that, you want your birth control, you can get your birth control. And by the way, you know, in some countries, it's just over the counter. I mean, maybe that's the solution as well. Just birth control should be over the counter. But this certainly is not the correct answer. It really shows you how, how backwards our economy is in many ways, that your boss can have this much control over your personal life. Because they have opinions on stuff. Are you allowed to do that to them? Are you allowed to say to them, hey, I don't agree with you buying that, or I don't agree with you, you know, doing that medical procedure? Can you say that to them? Of course you can. But they can say it to you. I think it's, it's comically absurd, but yet here we are again and expect a lot more decisions similar to this moving forward. All right, next. So here we go. This is the big scandal of the week that everybody was talking about. There was a an article in Harper's Magazine, which is, you know, like a left-wing publication, and it's titled A Letter on Justice and Open Debate. And um, so this was about cancel culture, and I want to read you some key parts, and I'm going to tell you who signed it and why this was so controversial. So um, here's you know, the gist of it summed up. They say, editors are fired for running controversial pieces, books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity, journalists are barred from writing on certain topics, professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class, A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study, and the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. As writers, we need a culture that leaves us room for experimentation, risk-taking, and even mistakes. Um, We need to preserve the possibility of good-faith disagreement without dire professional consequences. So, you know, the, the things that they allude to in there are real cases. I think the most egregious example was that there was this guy, this professor, who in the wake of the riots in Minneapolis and elsewhere, he shared a study, and it's actually a study we covered on this show as well, and the study found that it actually is the case that nonviolent peaceful resistance wins a hell of a lot more than riots. And, you know, the argument is, It was a researcher who studied the civil rights movement professionally and did it for years. And they found that what happens when you have peaceful, nonviolent resistance is that attracts very positive media coverage. And when you have the positive media coverage, that sort of sways the wishy-washy centrists in the country and makes people, you know, makes people become supportive of the agenda of the people who are acting very peacefully. And actually, funny enough, if the cops are being violent against the peaceful protesters, that helps the peaceful protesters even more. That's when you really get change, is when people see almost like a comic book villain-like situation where the cops are being clearly wrong and the peaceful protesters are clearly right. That's the thing that leads to change the most. What doesn't lead to change is when you have, you know, Violent protests or or, or riots, because then what happens is the media turns on the protests and they start describing, you know, a a situation as dangerous. And then the wishy-washy centrists turn towards believing more in law and order and security and like, hey, get things under control if they see violent protests and riots. So this guy shared this study and then there was a backlash and he was fired over it. And he was fired because, oh, he wasn't sufficiently uh, supportive enough of Black Lives Matter, and this is undermining the important movements. And, like, it was just, it was a terrible rationalization, and it was honestly abysmal and comical. But that's exactly what happened. The person was fired for sharing a study about how nonviolent peaceful resistance is preferable to riots. Think about how insane that is. You know, and there's many instances of this. Lee Fong um, was interviewing people about the riots. And there was somebody we was speaking to who was a minority, and the person said, like, I, I agree, police brutality is horrible, and we have to stop it, and I side with the movement on this front. I just also wish that there was more concern about the run-of-the-mill crime that's happening in our communities. Now, listen, that is an old conservative trope, but like, what about the black-on-black crime? That's definitely an old conservative trope. And when a conservative uses it as a general rule, they're just deflecting from police injustices. So they're like almost like, hey, there's nothing to see there. There's no problem to fix there. What about the black-on-black crime? It's a way to deflect. So I do think that's a Weasley argument. But context matters. And this young minority who's pro-Black Lives Matter who was saying this, that context is different than a hardcore conservative using it to deflect. I think that person's actually concerned about the crime rate in his community, and so he's making a point. Lee Fong tweeted it out. He was immediately accused of being a hardcore racist, and he was forced to like do this apology over it. So anyway, I'm, I'm dragging on here, but the point is, the point of the article is very simple. The point of the article is like, hey guys, can we please just not fire people or totally socially ostracize them for having questionable or fringe opinions. You could disagree with them. You could argue over stuff. But please, just don't be overly punitive. Like do an outrage mob where somebody's life is ruined, dox them or whatever, or fire them, which has been happening a lot when people say things that are just ever so slightly off base. Let's, Let's not do that anymore, please. Like, that's the gist of the letter, okay? Now, um... I totally agree with that sentiment, but let's dive into this a little deeper. So here are some of the people who signed this. This is interesting. Obviously, you can see J.K. Rowling, 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 however you say it, Noam Chomsky, but also David Brooks, David Frum, Malcolm Gladwell, Fareed Zakari of CNN, Matt Iglesias of Vox, Barry Weiss, Zephyr Teachout, Bernie Surrogate, she's great, Solomon Rushdie, and uh, Winton Marsalis, I thought that one was interesting. He seems like you know, musician amongst people who are more you know, newsy. But anyway, I digress. That's just some of the people who signed. I believe there's like maybe about a hundred people who signed it. Um, so there was a giant backlash over this. Now, what exactly is the nature of the backlash? Well, I think the first point people made, and on this one, I kind of agree. If you read the article. It does kind of sound like really self-important and self-aggrandizing in a way where these people think like, "Yay, yeah, we are the last bastions of freedom of speech, good sir. And it's just like, okay, relax a little bit. Like, also scale is important in this conversation. And I wouldn't put cancel culture on the list of like top five or ten most pressing issues in the country. I mean, for Christ's sake. There's a pandemic where over 120,000 people have been killed and rising rapidly. Um, There's effectively a new depression, which is going on, over 20% real unemployment. We have a health care crisis where we had 28 million people without insurance. Now it's another at least 20 million on top of it that don't have health insurance. We have an eviction and foreclosure crisis, which is just getting started. We're covering a story later on this preposterously high percentage of people in New York City who haven't paid their rent since March. So, like, there's so many real issues that override this. The wars are way more important than this. That are still going on. There's so much more going on. And, like, you get the sense that so many people who sign this letter, with some exceptions, like this guy here, they don't have a sense of the scale. They really think that, like, the worst thing in the world is that people are mean to them in their Twitter mentions. And so, therefore, this piece comes across as insufferably smug for that reason. Listen, that critique I kind of agree with. I kind of agree with that. Um, now, the other point that people make, which is absolutely true, is there, there are a lot of people who sign this, this letter who are just utterly disgusting, total and complete hypocrites, who, are not, who don't even abide by the principles that they're pretending to abide by. So the best example of this is Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss very famously tried to get a, a professor, or may have been professors, plural, Fired because they were pro-Palestine. And she's the first one. Like, there's a lot of these people who pretend to care about free speech, like Ben Shapiro, Barry Weiss, who the second anybody criticizes Israel, even mildly, all of a sudden it's anti-Semite, anti-Semite, anti-Semite. Oh, my God. Again, she literally tried to get somebody fired over their take on Israel-Palestine. So the point that, listen, a lot of people in this letter simply don't agree. They're pro-cancel culture when they're against the people espousing a political opinion. I think that's so true. It really is. It's so true. These people are terrible hypocrites. Uh, I mean, another great example of this is, and another problem with the letter, is that oftentimes when you talk about free speech, the dialogue of free speech, it's deployed by pampered elites or right-wing idiots to deflect any and all reasonable criticism. So the best example of this one is Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin has never heard a critique of him that he thought wasn't a smear. (laughs) Anything anybody's ever said against him is a smear. And when somebody disagrees with him, all that is is evidence that somebody's intolerant of other ideas. So it's like it's a way to try to take any criticism and say that's out of bounds and I won't even respond to it. Because it's not even a sincere criticism. Everybody's a nefarious actor, and any disagreement with me is just cancel culture. And so I've seen that so many times, and I think that a lot of people on the left, their only experience with you know, free speech dialogue is that is like right-wingers and pampered elites screaming about it when it doesn't even really apply. They're just being mildly critiqued. Like J.K. Rowling's another example. She'll say something on trans issues. A bunch of people will say, hey, I disagree with that, and I think it's transphobic. And she's like, oh, my God, I've been canceled, good sir. It's like, hey, relax. People disagree with you. You know, you might, you might you massively disagree with their, their characterization of you as transphobic, but they have the right to call you transphobic if they think you're transphobic. That also is freedom of speech. So it's like, in my mind, so when you talk about cancel culture, what's real cancel culture? I mean, the first thing on the list I would say is, like, Trump wanting to throw people in jail for a year— for burning the American flag. That's cancel culture. That is literally against the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and against free speech. Literally. Another example of cancel culture, in North Carolina, in a town in North Carolina, they banned protests. How did they do it? If you showed up, they arrested you to protest at a Confederate monument. They arrested you if you showed up. And then if you went to try to get a permit to go protest, they would deny you permits. So effectively, banning free protest and free speech. That is real cancel culture. What else is cancel culture? what I just described before, if, you, if there are professional consequences for something that you say which is out of the mainstream, so again, like somebody being fired for having an opinion that's out of the mainstream, I think that's cancel culture. A lot of these people are just mad that their Twitter mentions are full of people disagreeing with them. Seriously. And they think this is cancel culture. No, it's not. Sometimes people say stupid shit, and then other people pounce on their stupid shit. It happens, but they really think that, like, having mean Twitter mentions is the worst thing in the world. So I think that that's also a reasonable criticism of this article. It's really pompous and arrogant-sounding and self-aggrandizing, which is gross. Um, a lot of the people on the, on the who signed on to it are total hypocrites, uh, and oftentimes free speech is deployed just as, like, a total shield and diversionary tactic to not discuss the substance of what somebody's saying and not a ag- address the disagreement, and just to say all criticism is just cancel culture, and so I'm right, and I'm not even going to engage. So it's funny enough, it's a way to shut down free speech and and a free exchange of ideas. We've seen that, too. So I think all those criticisms are true. But overall, listen, even though the article reads in a pompous way, there's a reason why Noam Chomsky signed it. There's a reason why Zephyr Teachout signed it. There's a reason why, you know, a bunch of people who I think are totally sincere, signed it. Because the gist that they got out of it, which is undeniably true, the core of it is, hey, please don't fire people or totally socially ostracize them for having questionable or fringe opinions. That's it. So even though I I actually totally agree with many of the criticisms of this, I think the people who criticize it, without acknowledging the obvious point, that free speech is massively important, I think they're totally missing the mark and they've actually become sort of like a parody of themselves. There's this, there's this, par- there's this caricature of the left as like, they're just censorious little petty authoritarians who go after anybody who disagrees with them and what are in favor of professional consequences for people who disagree with them. And like, if you're criticizing this without adding the addendum, the caveat, the little asterisk and saying, hey man, Having said all that, free speech is massively important. Then you're kind of a sucker. And eventually, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And at some point, you will realize how important freedom of speech is. Why do I say that? Because, listen, when it comes to cancel culture, the primary victims... This is something that's going to blow a lot of people's minds. The primary victims are the left. It's always been the left. Noam Chomsky has been canceled more times in his life than any of us can freaking count. You want to know why? Because Noam Chomsky... Or is the United States of America giving speeches calling the United States of America the number one terror state in the world? You don't think that's controversial to many people? It absolutely is controversial to many people. You know what else has been happening on social media? Facebook pulled down a page called Cop Watch because they exposed the cops doing terrible things. Now, I look at that and say, that's freedom of speech, and that's holding the cops accountable. Well, it turns out power centers are pro-cop, and so they say, no, 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 this is more like hate speech, and we got to take it down. You're being too critical of cops. Pro-Palestinian Facebook pages have been pulled down under the guise of, this is hate speech, and they're massively anti-Semitic. Pro-BDS pages. There was a, an anti-war journalism outlet that was pulled down from Facebook, and they came up with some bullshit, dubious thing like, oh, the funding was questionable or something, so they pulled it down. Guys, the left will always be the primary target of censorship. Why? Because the left actually threatens power centers. If you, if you threaten power centers, they will first come for you. Look at Edward Snowden. Look at Julian Assange. Look at Chelsea Manning. If you want, especially when it comes to social media, the last thing you should want is to give powers of censorship and filtering and deplatforming to... Silicon Valley billionaires, they don't agree with you. They don't agree with you. So I don't know how how clear I could say it. If you gave censorship powers to social media, and we had social media in 2003 in the lead-up to the Iraq war, they would have pulled down everybody who was saying, actually wrong, Saddam doesn't have weapons of mass destruction, and Saddam did not work with al-Qaeda. They would have said, that's fake news, we can't allow that in the discourse, Pull it down. They would have pulled us down, you know, and they actually did try to drown us out in 2016 when we said, oh my God, the WikiLeaks proved that Bernie Sanders was screwed in the primary and Hillary stole it. Mainstream media was like, no, that's fake news, and if you discuss it, you're a Russian puppet and you're doing the bidding of a hostile foreign power. They look at us and say, we're fake news, and mainstream media has an L. Russiagate! If you dissent on Russiagate, you're viewed as wrong in the eyes of polite society. Why the hell would you want to give people who are part of the establishment more powers to censor? So just, like, I don't know what to tell you if you don't realize how important free speech is. See, the problem is many people get too comfortable and they think, well, obviously it will never affect me because my opinions are all correct. And, bro, people don't agree with you. People don't agree with us. A lot of the things that the left say is like super counterculture and edgy in polite society. You know, they definitely will come after hardcore Black Lives Matter people. They definitely will come after Marxists. I mean, this, again, I'm amazed that some people don't see this. It's obvious. Um, so you just you have to realize why free speech is so important. And this is why somebody like Noam Chomsky signed this, because despite all the arrogance of the letter and the hypocrites who are on it, the core of it is. Let's stop cancel culture, and I think that's, that absolutely needs to happen. And why would you cede this ground to the right also? There's no, why would you do that? Because now you're making them look more edgy than you, and you look like you're you know, the person with a stick up your ass, go, like, Mons, Mons, please, please come help. You're making them look cooler than they are. <laughs> like The real way you respond to the right is how I'm responding to them now, where you say, well, actually, you're a hypocrite. You don't believe in free speech, and I do believe in free speech. How you like them apples? That's how you do it. And uh, listen, I just final thing. It's hard to reconcile all the names on this, on this letter because, listen, some of those people, like David Frum, for example, the reason why he's signing on to this is because people on social media who are correct are saying, hey, you're a war criminal, and nobody should take you seriously, and you should be, like, shunned in polite society. I think the critics in that case are correct. I think that there's a there should be a healthy taboo on war crimes. <laughs> like, to the extent that there are any moral lines, and that cancel culture is is important, I would say that being a war criminal is clearly on one side of that line. So, like... The reason he signed this is totally cynical, because, again, we know that the second David Frum... David from would use cancel culture against his political enemies, who are usually correct, by the way, his political enemies, like that. So he's not actually anti-cancel culture. He is a hypocrite. And like the reason why David from and a guy like David Brooks... David from is signing on to this because he's a war criminal and he's felt repercussions of that, at least in the social sphere... A guy like David Brooks is against it because he writes a dumb article every month and then everybody, like, laughs at him and makes fun of him. Like, I think the reason why this segment is so long is because I'm trying to give all the nuance and all the perspective in it that a lot of the people are hypocrites. A lot of times free speech dialogue is just a a, a shield and it's a deflection. And, like, a lot of these people are total clowns who just mean, like, hey, don't cancel me. (laughs) Like, that's all they mean. But at the same time, even though the letter sounds kind of pompous, the core of it, I think, is undeniably true, which is why somebody like Noam Chomsky and somebody like Zephyr Teachout signed on to it. So we have to be willing to acknowledge that it's a complex world we live in, and that's the nature of reality with this letter, that you shouldn't disagree with the letter as such. You can critique it, but also acknowledge that, yes, cancel culture is a real problem. I think that's why that's what gets so frustrating about this is that like there is a healthy contingent now on the left. that just pretends like cancel culture isn't a real thing. What about all these examples I gave where it is unhealthy and you are, if anything, you're actually hurting your side because the way that you convince people is yes, by using persuasion, by using arguments, by almost taking little points of agreement and then exacerbating it. And then like, finding other areas where you can convince people. This is why, you know, my show, not to toot my own horn here, but the thing that I love the most that I hear whenever I go to these events like Politicon, people come up to me and say, hey, man, you saved me from the alt-right pipeline. And I love hearing that because then that's exactly the point. The point is I'm trying to craft arguments on this show that it's not just me preaching to the choir. It's me expanding beyond my bubble and almost getting people who otherwise would dislike me on a lot of stuff, to say, you know, I agree with Kyle on that. Interesting. Now let me see what he has to say on this other thing. So, like, that's how you... That's how you convince people. You don't do it through, like, firing them or doxing them or any these terrible things if they happen to have a, an opinion that's gross. So, you know, I forgot where I was going with that train of thought, but, oh, that there are people who really do pretend like cancel culture isn't a thing. And it's like... You're just being ridiculous at that point. You're just being totally ridiculous, and it's kind of silly. And I've seen different variations. There are people who say cancel culture just doesn't exist. And then there are people who say, well, it exists, and it's totally good, and I've never seen an example of it like, that wasn't justified. And I think both of those are just so – it's just such sloppy thinking, and it's gross. And, yeah, I don't know what else to say about this other than I get a lot of the criticisms, but overall, for the love of God – The left needs to embrace the mantle of free speech because it's vitally important. All right, next. Trump and Reagan. This is going to be interesting. So we have a new ad from Republicans Against Trump. They compare him to Reagan here. Let's watch, and then I will explain to you why this is kind of absurd.
2: For the first time in our memory, many Americans are asking, does history still have a place for America? There are some who answer no. and we must tell our children not to dream as we once dreamed. Together, tonight, let us say that America is still united, still strong still compassionate, still willing to stand by those who are persecuted or alone, for those who are victims of police states or government-induced torture or terror, let us speak for them. I believe we can embark on a new age of reform in this country that will make government again responsive to people. We can fight corruption while we work to bring into our government women and men of competence and high integrity. Tomorrow, you will be making a choice between different visions of the future. Are you more confident that our economy will create productive work for our society, or are you less confident? Do you feel you can keep the job you have, or gain a job if you don't have one? Are you pleased with the ability of young people to buy a home, of the elderly to live their remaining years in happiness, of our youngsters to take pride in the world we have built for them? Are you convinced that we have earned the respect of the world and our allies? Let us resolve tonight that young Americans will always find a city of hope in a country that is free. And let us resolve. They will say of our day and of our generation that we did keep faith with our God, that we did act worthy of ourselves, that we did protect and pass on lovingly a shining city on a hill.
1: So the implication of that ad clearly in no uncertain terms, is, look, Trump is really, really, really bad. Here's Reagan, and he's good. Like, oh, look at the dichotomy. Don't you wish we could go back to the days when we had serious, good Republican presidents? That's what the whole point of the ad, is let's compare Trump to former Republican presidents. And see, Trump is so bad, and former Republican presidents, look how good and serious they were, and look how beautiful this speech is. That's the point of the ad. And I saw people who are nominally on the left praising this ad. You, without even realizing it, these people are sanitizing the Republican Party and former Republican presidents. Stop doing that. It's like this revival of George W. Bush that we've seen in the Trump years, or even people on the left now have a favorable opinion of him. Have you people lost your minds? George W. Bush is a war criminal. He did torture His economic policies helped crash the economy. He did an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, killed a minimum of 200,000 civilians. That's not okay. But now you're basically excusing all that stuff because Trump bad. I agree, Trump bad. I'm not saying Trump's good. But the other Republican presidents were bad too. And in many instances, sometimes even worse than Trump. And I'm saying that based on the policies, based on the actual record. So, listen, Reagan was not good. Reagan, let me give you a little list here that I jotted down as I was watching that ad. Reagan accelerated the war on drugs, which is the new Jim Crow. So Ronald Reagan is pro the new Jim Crow. Lock up poor white people and minority communities as much as possible. He accelerated the war on drugs. He cut taxes for the rich. He deregulated Wall Street. He massively increased defense spending. He fired nearly 12,000 striking air traffic control workers. He was colossally anti-union. He cut Department of Education funding in half. And he, very famously, ignored the AIDS crisis. Those things are inexcusable. And they're not okay. Stop rehabbing his image. Stop right now. And listen, this really gets to it's almost like the argument that I've made all along is even more true than I realized. <laughs> because what did I say? It's all about the decorum and the civility and the presentation of it all. So the reason why Democrats now are giving Reagan a pass is because he sounds presidential. Look at him. He talks like he's a serious person and president and he doesn't fire off mean tweets, and he has a filter, and he watches his words, and he says pretty things from time to time, Yet, So you're, th- these people are admitting that they're suckers. They're like, listen, you could keep doing as, m- as much terrible stuff as you want, but just BS me to my face, and I'll be happy. That's what this is. That's what this is an admission of. Hey, as long as you BS me, we're good. Stop rehabbing Republican monsters. Reagan was a monster. You don't have to say Reagan good to make the point that Trump bad. But again, this is what happens when you have former Republicans or current Republicans against Trump, is that seriously the only reason they dislike Trump is because of the mean tweets and because he's unhinged. I'm not kidding. They're like, man, you can't make us look professional as you do all these terrible policies. That's why we're against you. That's the only reason. So if you're on the left, recognize that. And do not boost these charlatans and these frauds. So if you want a good laugh here, Trump is fundamentally incapable of stopping this wrong strategy that he's doing for the 2020 election. Trump campaign considers displaying statues at future rallies. The president criticized those calling for removal of controversial monuments. You know how there's, you know, people said about hippies like, oh, they're tree huggers. Trump is like a statue hugger. He's become like the right-wing parody of the left-wing stereotype. Okay, how many times have we gone over this? You can't run on the culture war and on statues when you have a pandemic killing people all across the country and an economic depression. You're going to get your ass handed to you, which is why in every single poll, Biden maintains a colossal lead. Because people get the sense like, oh, this guy's ridiculous. He's just talking about the culture war as like the country's falling apart. What are you doing? And now he's taking a step. He's like, oh, my God, my culture war thing is not working. Let's do it even more. <laughs> Get some statues behind me at an event, and I'll hug like a George Washington statue or something. Now, by the way, Trump also declared that he declared that the U.S. is in a culture war. He said it, and um, he went on to call flying the Confederate flag, quote, freedom of... speech. Now, listen, if somebody on if somebody on their own private property, wants to do whatever with that Confederate flag. It's their property. They get to do whatever they want with that flag. That is freedom. That is whatever they want. But pulling down the Confederate flag on public land, it's not free speech to have a Confederate flag or Confederate monuments on public land. That is not free speech because the government represents all of us. And so to fly a Confederate flag or put up a Confederate monument That is literally a symbol of oppression for many Americans living in those states. So black people are paying for a monument or a flag that represents a giant middle finger to them. No, the government is supposed to represent us, represent us, all of us. So putting a a Confederate flag up or a Confederate monument on public land is not free speech. On private land it is. It is free speech. doesn't matter how much we dislike the Confederate flag. It is free speech on private land, not on public land. So he's wrong when he says that. But also note the irony. Note the irony. Trump does not think burning an American flag is free speech. If it's your own American flag, it absolutely is free speech. The Supreme Court ruled exactly that in 1989. But he says burning a flag is not free speech. He wants to punish that with a year in jail. But keeping up Confederate flags on public land is free speech. Totally wrong, totally backwards. And again, you could tell here that he's just leaning into the culture war. Now, the little cherry on top at the end of this story, just to show you how immensely cynical Trump is, and that he he doesn't have a strong position on any of this garbage. He's doing it because he views it as a vessel to continued power for himself. He thinks this is the way to win the election, so this is the avenue I'm going to go. But look at what Trump said. This is, this is in 2015. This is five years ago. This is not that long ago. Look at what he said about the Confederate flag back then.
3: You're the lone Republican presidential candidate who has yet to weigh in on whether or not you think the Confederate flag should be flying above the statehouse in South Carolina. Do you think it needs to go? I
0: think it probably does, and I think they should put it in the museum. Let it go. Respect whatever it is that you have to respect because it was a point in time and put it in a museum, but I would take it down, yes.
1: What was it, Don? Were you lying then or are you lying now? What is it that you really believe? He's vapid. He doesn't even know what he really believes because it's not about that. It's about, I want to be president, and I want to say or do whatever I think I can in order to continue to be president and to win this next election. Right now, I think my best strategy is going all in on the culture war, so I'm going to go all in on the culture war. That's what he's doing. That's what it is. Total clown. Total clown. You know, I do find it amazing. How are you going to run for president? And you don't even know what you believe on these issues. Like, that not that thing number one is, like, you have to have strong beliefs on all these different issues to run for office? No matter what your opinion is, shouldn't you have one when talking about these issues? No. Back then, yeah, pull it down. I think it makes sense that, you know, they're symbols of uh, people who seceded from the U.S. It's like, why are we venerating literal traitors here, right? And then now, it's like, no, no, no. I'm in favor of them, and it's free speech. He doesn't believe anything. He believes in more power for Donald Trump. So again, he will say and do whatever the hell he thinks. He he responds to pressure. But it's mostly the last person he hears from. It's like when he ran and it was uh, you know all like, the wars are stupid, we're going to get out of the wars. We're still in all the wars, all of them, right now. So what happened? What happened was the generals behind closed doors were like, Yeah, here's what's going to happen. We're not going to pull out of Afghanistan and Iraq, so get used to it. And he's like, right, totally, we're going to do that. The best example of this actually is um, the pharma example. He used to say, Trump used to say in his speeches all the time, we're getting ripped off, we're getting ripped off by big pharma, we're going to negotiate for better drug prices, for, for Medicare, that's what we're going to do, it's going to be amazing. It took one meeting with pharmaceutical lobbyists. For him to totally flip his position and say, I think it's very unfair to negotiate for lower drug prices with these pharmaceutical companies. Took one meeting. All it took was a handful of lobbyists to give him some BS argument, and he was like, no, right, you're totally right, I agree. This is what happens on every issue with him. Whoever's the last one in the room, he's like, they're right. So guess what? Now his response to the coronavirus, look at how weak it's been. Well, on the economy, he's got Larry freaking Kudlow telling him what to do. And Larry Kudlow literally floated a capital gains tax cut to deal with COVID. That's a tax cut for people with investments. 90% of the market is owned by the top 10%. You're saying cut rich people's taxes, and that'll help with COVID-19, with the, uh, with the bounce back from COVID-19. Are you insane? But that's the last person in the room. So i like, absolutely. I think that's a great point, Larry. We're going to look at that very strongly. He doesn't believe anything. He doesn't believe anything. What a joke. So, and even if you're somebody who's a fan of him, how do you, how do you square this circle? How do you square this circle? I can find, And I can do the same thing. We did this with Hillary, and everybody understood how devastating it was with Hillary. Hey, here's her on both sides of every issue over the years. She said one thing, that she said the opposite. One thing and the opposite. everybody's like, oh, my God, she believes in nothing. This is the same thing. Wake up. Wake up. The guy's a fraud. Okay, next. So we have an update on the Unity Commission that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have set up with some of their, you know, respective people. Yeah, John Kerry, for example, was on Biden's Unity Task Force, and um, AOC was on Bernie's, and they came together to work on climate policy. They worked on six um, different issues or overarching issues categories, um, and they just released a list. Of their recommendations. It's over 110 pages. Now, last night the news broke that um, they finished, but they didn't actually release the list itself. Like the news agencies did not say, here's the over 100 pages of policy recommendations. Um, they only had some brief things here and there that they dropped in the various articles explaining some of what's in there. So, um, Here's a tweet on it. This is from an NBC News reporter. So we have an update. Oh, excuse me. Um, Six policy task forces have released a hefty list of recommendations for the party's nominee and and DNC platform committee to, to consider details on the united effort to coalesce voters provided first to NBC News. So here are some of the few details that we actually have. They want zero carbon emissions by 2035, which apparently moved up Biden's previous line for zero carbon emissions by 15 years. Um, They want some police reform executive orders. They didn't describe exactly what those ones are. And they want a moratorium on deportations for 100 days. Now, I will say the zero carbon emissions thing, I always find that so curious because it's like, yeah, we, we all agree the goal is zero carbon emissions. But putting that arbitrary line on it, it's like that's not the way this stuff works. It's like we need to do massive investment in the technologies of the future right now, and then just hope to get their ASAP to zero carbon emissions. You can't set a line of 15 years, and then like 14 years from now, we've done nothing. And then it's like, but by next year, we'll have no carbon emissions. That's not the way it works. So I always find the line thing weird. And listen, ultimately, I think that I think that this unity task force is, just, is useless because they come up with the platform, and then they're just going to ignore the platform. They do it all the time. Like, oh, here's what I say I'm in favor of, and then they just don't do those things. Okay. So it's just a way to like, appease people who actually care about policy, and then once he gets in office, he's just like, I'm going to do whatever I want. You know? That's the way that these things work. Now, um, here's what's not in the list of recommendations, apparently, according to these articles. No Green New Deal. Um, no defunding the police. I'm not surprised on the defunding the police thing at all. Um, no abolishing ICE. I'm not surprised on that one either. No Medicare for all. Biden was adamant that we have to do the, expand the Affordable Care Act. You know, the reasonable thing is to expand the Affordable Care Act into Medicare for all. But no, he just wants to expand it and in a nondescript way and, you know, just, Make it slightly better, even though it, we still had 28 million people without health insurance. So it's, it's not good enough, period. But anyway, um, the one that I actually hurt the most, in my opinion, because this is one that I actually was holding out hope that he might improve on, no legalizing marijuana. Apparently, he was adamant on that front, too. So, listen, it is kind of a worst-case scenario in many ways because Biden has such a big lead in the polls now They know he has a big lead in the polls now, and um, they kind of know that they don't need the left. They know they have enough already, and if they continue to jack those senior voters from Trump, they think we're perfectly comfortable doing this. So basically some of the biggest issues for the left, Green New Deal, Medicare for All, legalizing marijuana, he's just like, no, I don't agree. So it's a tough position for the left to be in. Electorally defeated with Bernie. I think in many ways his campaign really was terrible after Super Tuesday. Um, And then he bent the knee without guarantees. And then now Biden is perfectly free to just be like, yeah, I'm not going to do the most important things that you guys care about. So he's running as a moderate Republican. And that, at this point, it appears like is good enough in the Trump era to get him a W. And the left is, uh, you know, yet again sort of ignored and just left on the side of the road. Now, people would argue, and this is a fair point, that, well, at least Biden's going through the motions to make it look like he cares. Whereas Hillary is just a middle finger to the left, like almost openly. Whereas with Biden's like, hey, at least I'm going to give you the courtesy of BSing you. Hey, I created a commission. Hey, sure, let's have AOC and some of the others on the left. Like, we want to work with you. We're not going to give you the finger. We care a lot about what you have to say. Some would say, hey, at least he's going through those motions. Okay, but I actually think it's debatable as to which is better. At least Hillary was honest about hating the left. With Biden, it's like, um, I'm going to BS you and pretend I like you, but I don't like you. So it's like, the liar who's doing the window dressing, or the truth teller, who's just wrong on the face of it. There's a debate in my mind as to which one is better. (laughs) So who knows? But um, I will leave you with one last piece of information, which is actually good news, which is good news. Um, And I have said this on the show a lot of times. I hope, maybe I had some impact on this, because Some of the people who are on that unity commission know of the show and maybe watch the show from time to time. But I kept repeating, and you guys will remember this if you're longtime listeners of the show. um, I kept bringing up that Bernie could have gotten real tangible concessions from Biden in the form of guaranteed executive orders within the first 100 days. And he could have used that and basically gone to the left and said, hey, look what I got here. I got 10 guaranteed executive orders that are actually awesome. You want to leave these on the table? Fine. But you're leaving good things on the table if you don't vote for Biden. They could have done that. They didn't do that. But as part of this, you know, unity commission, apparently one of the ideas that they came out with is Biden says he's in favor of a Buy American executive order, which was one of the things I was saying he should come out in favor of a Buy American executive order. Now, there is a difference. The difference is I was saying I wanted a guarantee from Biden of an executive order on it within the first 100 days. We did not get a guarantee within the first 100 days, but we got it as part of the Unity Commission. So I think it could be ignored or not, but he is saying, hey, I'm in favor of a Buy American executive order now. And I got the the best news to add on top of that is Trump is fuming over that. Trump is fuming that Biden outflanked him on an issue involving working people. Because he thought, oh, no, no, I see, this is, my, this is my job. I go out there and hit NAFTA and hit TPP and stuff, and so what is, what is Biden going to counter with? He's going to say, hey, I bailed out GM. I was part of the Obama administration. We bailed out General Motors. You're going to tell me about working people? I bailed out General Motors. Get out of here with that. But beyond that, Trump has not signed the Buy America executive order that he said he was going to sign. He kept calling for it. Oh, we need, we need to do this. We need to do this. It's an executive order that says the federal government can only purchase from American companies. That would massively help U.S. businesses and workers here. Massively. Because right now we buy from all over the world. And so if you guarantee, and the federal government buys a lot of stuff. So just that one executive order is great for jobs here. Trump acted like he was going to sign it. He never signed it. Instead, he did a symbolic Buy America week. It was all symbolism. Oh, let's talk about it. Let's suck off America and act like, oh, our workers are so great. But it's just, you know, a week of us sucking each other off. That's it. Biden just outflanked Trump on that, at least in, in rhetoric, at least. Who knows if he'll actually sign the executive order. Like I said, Bernie didn't get any guarantees. It's just in the Unity Commission. But he did say, I'm down with the Buy American executive order. Hey, is it possible that somebody who watches this show and heard me scream about that for a month said which is on the commission and said, let's do this, and everybody was like, that's a great idea. And again, this was the one thing that triggered Trump, where he was like, God damn it, you outflanked me on trade. People should listen to me more often. <laughs> I don't know why you guys don't listen to me all the time. Obviously, everything I say is brilliant, duh. But no, this is actually good. That's the one part of this that... Is a little bit of a silver lining the part that hurt the most as i said was no legalizing marijuana because listen i totally agree that mass incarceration is the new jim crow we had slavery we had jim crow and segregation and then the outgrowth of that was mass incarceration and nixon's white house admitted it yes we wanted to lock up the undesirables because they were never going to support us politically so we wanted to lock up the hippie white people and we wanted to lock up the communities of color How do we do that? Find a way to criminalize that lifestyle. So marijuana, criminalize it, and then focus on those communities. So it is the new Jim Crow. We jail more people than anywhere else for stupid reasons. So if you're not talking about legalizing recreational marijuana and freeing every nonviolent drug offender, then you are supportive of the new Jim Crow. Joe Biden is supportive of the new Jim Crow. And that's unacceptable. That's really sad because I thought this is one area where it's possible He's like, you know what? Fine. I knew he wasn't going to say it on Medicare for all. I knew there were many left issues that we care about that he was going to be like, piss off. But I thought there was a chance, especially since the guy who wrote the crime bill got a lot of crap now for the crime bill. And there's this whole mea culpa, you know, that everybody had to do if they supported the crime bill. Turns out in Biden's heart of hearts, he really is tough on crime. He really is a law and order kind of guy. And um, he really is like a moderate Republican. So he's like, no, I don't, I don't agree with legalizing marijuana. That's a big one that's bad, man. That's terrible. And there's no, there's no putting lipstick on that pig. That's for damn sure. All right. Let me take a break. When we come back, we are going to do what probably my favorite story of the day is Kanye West and his interview with Forbes about his presidential platform. It is beyond hilarious. I'm going to have so much fun with that. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much more. back, bitch. That was a very productive break. I got an eyelash out of my eye, which was annoying to crap out of me. And I also ate something, which I did not do before the show. So that was basically as productive as breaks come. They don't get any more productive than that. Anyway, um, it's time to talk about... Kanye West, (laughs) this is so beautiful. I'm enjoying this story more than I should be. All right, here we go. Kanye West did an interview with Forbes about his apparent run for president. (laughs) And, you know, he laid out his presidential platform here. I'm going to go through it in detail. You're going to know exactly what Kanye is running on. Now, before we get started, I have to say, is he actually running? Who the hell knows? Because the deadline to run um, as an independent already passed in some key states. And I believe he has a month or two left for the rest of them. So, like, the deadlines are, like, here now. And um, he doesn't have a staff. He has no staff. So if you don't have staff working on this right now, then you're not really running for president. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like, There's all these steps and these hoops you have to jump through and all these things you have to do. and It's a massive, colossal, gargantuan effort from a lot of people. And if the ball's not rolling on that already, then obviously you're not running. So anyway, that's, the, that's my spiel. But he brings up, like, uh, 2020 or 2024. So it's almost like he's saying, like, yeah, maybe now, but definitely if not now, 2024. So who knows what he's doing? He's all over the place. But I found this interview hilarious. (laughs) So let me give you – let's start with this. They asked him about his natural political party. He says, quote, I would run as a Republican if Trump wasn't there. I will run as an independent if Trump is there. On his previous support for Trump. Trump is the closest president we've had in years to allowing God to still be part of the conversation. What? On his MAGA hat moment. One of the main reasons I wore the red hat as a protest to the segregation of votes in the black community. Also, other than the, the fact that I like Trump hotels and the saxophones in the lobby... So that one actually kind of contradicts what he had previously said. He used to say, I like, I like Trump because he's dragon energy, and I'm dragon energy too. Well, now, you know, he says he likes Trump because uh, he doesn't like that Democrats get the black vote in, like, upwards of 90%. And um, he doesn't like that, and he also likes Trump hotels. I mean, I don't even know, this is one of those things where I don't even know where to begin. The fact that he said that he thinks Trump is the closest president we've had in years to allowing God to be part of the conversation. When I think of, like, a godly person, Trump is, like, the last person that comes to mind. Trump is clearly, like, just colossally self-obsessed. Well, so is Kanye, and that's, you know, you know how they say real recognize real? I guess narcissists recognize narcissists as well. But I don't know how anybody could look at Trump and say, like, well, that, that man is so godly. <laughs> what? The guy's probably never said a prayer in his life. Yeah. It... Anyway, um, this gets better and better. I'm just getting warmed up here. He says, let's see if the appointing is in 2020 or if it's 2024, because God appoints the president. Oh, is that how it works? If I win in 2020, then it was God's appointment. If I win in 24, 2024, then that was God's appointment. What if you don't win at all? <laughs> is that God just doesn't want you to be president, I guess then? On on the coronavirus cure, he says, "We pray. We pray for freedom. It's all about God. We need to stop doing things that make God mad." Okay, he thinks prayer is going to cure coronavirus. Come on, Kanye. Come on, bro. And if you think, "Come on, Kyle, you're not being fair. That's not a charitable interpretation." Look at the very next thing on vaccines. He says, quote, it's so many of our children that are being vaccinated and paralyzed. So when they say the way we're going to fix COVID is with a vaccine, I'm extremely cautious. That's the mark of the beast. They want to put chips inside of us. They want to do all kinds of things to make it where we can't cross the gates of heaven. I'm sorry when I say they, the humans that have the devil inside them and that and the sad thing is that, the saddest thing is that we all won't make it to heaven. That there'll be some of us that do not make it. Next question.
0: <laughs> Come on, bro. What the fuck is this?
1: So his platform is coronavirus cure prayer vaccines against them. <laughs> so now I'll give, I'll give you more here. We'll do more rapid fire. But he goes on. Um, so he's asked about his foreign policy. His response, I haven't developed it yet. I'm focused on protecting America first with our great military. Let's focus on ourselves first. But what does that mean? What does that mean? He says, I haven't developed it yet, but I'm focused on protecting America. Yeah, but some people say, I think wrongly, others disagree. Oh, we have to protect America from like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So therefore, it's totally justified for us to stay in Iraq, for us to stay in Afghanistan, us to keep escalating in other countries in the middle east like what entails the whole i'm focused on protecting america that's the question somebody like me would argue hey we are being the aggressors in in these situations and there's no definition of victory in these wars so let's come home that's what i would say to me that's protecting america other people say no protecting america is the neocons say bombing the hell out of everybody else so what is your take on that? Are you pro-intervention? Are you against intervention? Are you for what's called soft power with drone strikes and whatnot? Or are you for boots on the ground, as they call it, which is outright invasions? How do you run for president and say, oh, foreign policy? I, I, don't, I haven't developed that yet. Bro, foreign policy is literally the most important thing a president does. Foreign policy. The president is the commander-in-chief. He has direct control over the military. He is above the generals. He gets to call the shots on foreign policy. You can't say, I don't know yet. I haven't developed my foreign policy yet. Because then it's like, well, you're putting the cart before the horse here. Why are you running? See, this is what drives me crazy. And this is how you know we're truly in a uniquely narcissistic age. Is that you get the sense, and it's not just, I'm picking on Kanye here. He's a clear example of it. But Trump was the same way. There are other people in the Democratic Party who are the same way. Beto O'Rourke comes to mind, for example. Pete Buttigieg. They they don't care about the policy. They just want the name recognition and the self-aggrandizement. They want the title of president. They want that power. So it's like, let me get the office, and then I'll fill in the details. But the whole point of getting the office is supposed to be the details. Like, here are the things I want to do, and that's why you should vote for me. I, this is It's so frustrating. Anyway, but it's also funny in the case of Kanye. On abortion, he says, I am pro-life because I'm following the word of the Bible. Now, um, Kanye, I hate to burst your bubble here, but the Bible has many parts that are pro-abortion. This is something that the pro-life people have tried to hide from the rest of us for a long time. But I I actually have done multiple segments on this in the past where I go through the exact passages. There's one passage where they say, um, if your wife's having an affair... She's supposed to drink what they call bitter water in the Bible, and the b- bitter water forces uh, a miscarriage. So in other words, the Bible says if your wife cheats, drink this potion to have an abortion, because that fetus might be the fetus of another man, so obviously you've got to abort. And that's just one part. There's other parts, too, where they allude to terminating pregnancies, and that being totally fine. It's so, oh my God, it's so amazing how much culture overrides, like, literal reality. Because culturally in this country, we've just come, everybody's just come to accept. Like, well, obviously, the Bible's uh, pro-life. What? (laughs) I could give you multiple passages where they do abortions in the Bible. Anyway, I digress. On taxes, I love this. On taxes, he says, I haven't done enough research on that yet. I will research that with the strongest experts. He sounds like Trump the strongest
0: experts, most incredible experts,
1: I will research that with the strongest experts that serve God and come back with the best solution. And that will be my answer for anything that I haven't researched. I have the earplug in, and I'm going to use that earplug. Earplug? What? (laughs) Okay, your tax policy is not supposed to be in any way, shape, or form related to God. That's not where you go to try to figure out tax policy. You go to like economists, (laughs) you go to God. And yet again, he says it. Well, I haven't researched that yet. Then why the hell are you running for president? Why would you run? I don't know what I want to do on taxes and I don't know what I want to do on foreign policy, but I want to be president. Yeah, but again, the whole point of being president is to set the policy agenda for the country and try to change the country in a certain direction. You know, I would argue social democracy is preferable. Raise taxes on the rich, for example. And the wars, that's what we should do. You have to have some sort of underlying philosophy and ideology to run. He's like, I have no ideology, but I'd still like to be president. Taxes? I don't know. I I haven't looked into that yet. Prayer in school, he says, quote, Reinstate in God's state, in God's country, the fear and love of God in all schools and organizations, and you chill the fear and love of everything else. So that was a plan by the devil to have our kids committing suicide at an all-time high by removing God, to have murders in Chicago at an all-time high because the human beings working for the devil remove God and prayer from the schools. That means more drugs, more murders, more suicide. Again, where do I begin? All right, massively unconstitutional, totally not allowed to have God in schools. There have been Supreme Court cases over this, very simply we are a secular nation. There's a separation of church and state. The government cannot establish a religion, the establishment clause. And they can't favor one religion over another. So you can't have schools be Christian like Kanye is any more than you could have them be Hindu or Muslim or any of the other of the thousands of religions that exist in the world. You can't do it. We're secular. So his, part of what he's running on is like, I would like to be a theocracy. Kanyeocracy is what he's running on. And then also the rest of the stuff, I'm sorry, but it's been proven. These social ills are not tied to lack of religiosity. Some of the most religious states in the country, like Mississippi, for example, have like the highest rates of poverty, the highest rates of of a lot of these giant issues that he's alluding to here. Okay, obviously the answer is not just God. You could be a very godly community and still have a lot of social ills. It's not a cure-all. It's not a solution. And, in fact, we mocked a Republican a few years ago because a Republican uh, set up a prayer committee to try to lower the crime rate in whatever his respective, you know, um, state was or town was or I don't remember what level of government he was in. But there was a Republican politician who set up a prayer thing to deal with crime. And everybody was like, what are you doing? That's not... Obviously, that's not going to work. So his solution is just God, 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 God. The devil is uh, causing all these problems. We're going to fight back against the devil. But this, that's not actually the cause of the problems. Just so you understand, there's some Scandinavian countries where it's like over 80% of the population is non-religious. And they have wonderful, beautiful, functioning societies that are amazing. Low poverty rates, high wages, more vacation time, everybody's happy. Okay, anyway, let's continue. Um, he says, on developing policies, he says, quote, I don't know if I would use the word policy for the way I would approach things. I don't have a policy. I didn't have a policy when I went to Nike and designed Yeezy and, and went to Louis Vuitton and designed, and designed a Louis Vuitton at the same time. It wasn't a policy. It was a design. We need to innovate the design to be able to free the mind at this time. Call it whatever the hell you want to call it. Call it a design. Call it a policy. What the hell do you want to do? And how are you going to develop these ideas? <laughs> All right, so now I've been beating up on Kanye this whole time. I will end on one positive note with one positive thing that he said, which I agree with. He says he's against the death penalty. So uh, good for him. Now he's against it for re- religious reasons, which, again, is you know perhaps not the best way to reason yourself to this conclusion. But I'll take it because he ends up in the right place. But um, who knows if he's actually going to run... This could just be a PR thing, or he could be serious about running, but he's not going to do the necessary legwork in order to, to run, if he does run, obviously. You know, some people are saying, oh, this is a plan for Kanye to take some of the black vote from Biden to help Trump win. Totally don't buy that. You think a guy that's this unhinged with the stuff he just said here is playing some 3D chess game like that? You're kidding yourself. It's all the hardcore Democrats, like the, the centrist Democrat types who are screaming that. And it's like, these guys are just embarrassing. Just stop it. Um, but I don't know if he'll run for real, but uh, more interviews like this because I, I can't get enough of this. all right next the trump administration's comical failure on the coronavirus continues jeff stein of the washington post says the following new trump keeps pushing new tax deductions to encourage americans to go back to sports restaurants travel and entertainment industry lobbyists are privately telling the white house that won't matter unless more is done to contain the virus trump and white house officials have talked up endorsed tax breaks for restaurants operating at way reduced capacity, sports games, barred to fans, entertainment, theaters are closed, vacation, $4,000 credit per person, unclear if people feel safe traveling. A sense of scale here, one possible version of Trump's proposed tax deduction would cost $2 billion a year, for the rest, and restaurant industry losses by the end of 2020 is $240 billion, Sports revenue lost $12 billion. Entertainment industry lost $20 billion. So um, the point of this story is they're, like, comically out of touch. I mean, it's, it's like, legendary how out of touch they are. They have one solution to everything. And it's like, uh, what if we did tax cuts? Okay, but as Jeff Stein points out accurately, doesn't matter how many tax cuts you give people, they don't feel safe going in public because there's a virus ripping through the country. You still have Florida, Arizona, Texas, record number of cases. Trump was bragging about the death rate being low, but that's just because the deaths lag from the initial time when people get the virus. So wait a couple weeks and that death rate is going to skyrocket again because people are just getting the virus in gigantic numbers now. In Florida, Arizona, Texas, there's other countries as well where it's on the rise. So you can't, they're trying to force everything back to normal without addressing the elephant in the room. Namely, there's an out-of-control virus. Guys, how many times have I told you this? If we mandated masks world uh, worldwide, we can't do that. We don't have the authority. If we mandated masks in the country, if Trump said, new regulations at the federal level, everybody's got to wear masks that alone would have a gigantic impact. There was a study that came out that found, I believe, the deaths in this country would be one-twelfth what they are if everybody wore a mask. I keep giving the example of of Japan where, now this isn't to say that their response was perfect, just to be clear, um, but to do a comparison with us, they look a hell of a lot better than we do because they have... Less than 1,000 deaths. Admittedly, they have a smaller population. But still, less than 1,000 deaths from coronavirus. And really, the only difference is everybody wore a mask. They did, like, minor shutdowns here and there, but it wasn't like a total economic shutdown like we did here. And um, less than 1,000 people died. And it's all because they wore. everybody wears masks. We have over 125,000 deaths. And, you know, it's a, it, it's, some people wear masks. Other people don't. I'll tell you, from being in New York, I know... That the minute everybody started wearing masks in enclosed spaces inside, our numbers, the number of coronavirus cases plummeted. Plummeted. Not as many people were getting the virus. But the Trump administration is refusing to even just say, hey, everybody wear a mask. They're go- skipping right to step, like, eight, and they're like, all right, we're going to do tax credits. But nobody wants to go to restaurants. So they, they wanted to give minor league baseball a tax cut. The day after they floated that idea, minor league baseball was like, yeah, we've had a bunch of new coronavirus cases, so we have to shut down the facility and postpone the season. It just it shows you how amazingly out of touch they are. You know what else Larry Kudlow floated? You're going to love this. It's incredible. A capital gains tax cut. You know what a capital gains tax cut is? Uh, capital gains tax is the money, investment money, the tax on investment money. So, like, if you have... A bunch of money in the market, the stock market, and say you make $2,000 in one month from your investments, the capital gains tax is the rate that that's taxed. Um, I believe they've already cut it once or twice, and they want to, ideally, they want to eliminate it. Now, understand something about the market, guys. 90% of the market, actually, I think it's 92%, is owned by the top 10% of earners. So to target a tax cut to them, that's only helping the wealthy, quite literally. This is at a time when people, workers are getting obliterated. And he's talking about an idea to help the top 10%. It's so out of touch that you almost get the sense that they don't even want it to work. Like, they just want to continue to to loot the treasury. And and rip the country off and screw workers. And Larry Kudlow wants to help his buddies on Wall Street. Like, that's the sense you get watching this. It's like, oh, this is so stupid, they can't even have the intention of wanting to fix stuff. They can't even have the intention. This is so stupid, it appears like they don't even care about the problem. They just want to give more money to their friends. So, I I mean, it's, how are you going to go to tax cuts again? How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? Look at the current state of affairs. You're going to tax cuts, bro. We desperately need a UBI. We desperately need Medicare for all. Like, this is what we need. There's 25%. We'll get to the story in a little bit. But a quarter of New York City renters haven't paid rent since March. We're about to face a foreclosure and eviction crisis, the likes of which we've never seen. A new homelessness crisis. And he's talking about tax cuts for the rich. Embarrassing. All right, now, speak of the devil. We're going to go right into that story now. Right into that story now. Let's do it. We spoke about a looming foreclosure and eviction crisis coming soon on an episode of the show a couple months ago, maybe. Um, Well, Business Week just reported this, 25% of New York City's apartment renters haven't paid since March. A quarter of renters in New York City, and New York City is very big, haven't paid since March. It's upon us. It's upon us. Now, I don't know, we're still, we still got the pandemic ripping through the country, so there's still some sort of temporary protections, no foreclosures, no evictions, but who knows how long that's going to last. The second they start allowing foreclosures and evictions, we're going to have a homelessness crisis the likes of which we've never seen in this country. It will surpass the Great Depression. We've never seen anything like this. Now, you have to understand something, as we covered in the previous segment. Before the pandemic hit, there were 2 million people evicted each year. Now, that's, that's higher than the height of the Great Recession. So we had a housing market crisis in 2008, 2009. And just before this pandemic hit, we were already eclipsing the record numbers Of evictions. And now you have the pandemic, which more than exacerbated this, more than exacerbated this. We're about to experience an apocalyptic event. We really are. Something needs to be done. And by the way, look at all the responses to COVID-19. The government rushed in to bail out the stock market, the Federal Reserve pumping a trillion dollars of liquidity per day into the stock market. Congress steps up, $5 trillion at the discretion of Steve Mnuchin to give to corporations, giant bailout. And meanwhile, the people got hosed again, just like with the Wall Street bailout in 2008. They got hosed. Is that money trickling down to these people? Nope. Nope. We could have done a UBI. We could have done Medicare for all. There's a lot we could have done. We didn't do it. And now we're going to experience mind-boggling pain throughout the country. And another fact here that we've discussed previously, but half of renters are food insecure, couldn't afford utilities or medical care since the beginning of the pandemic. Half, half of renters are food insecure. We are exacerbating income and wealth inequality in a way that I didn't think previously was even possible, because I already thought we're so bad. We're so bad with income and wealth inequality that, like, how can it get worse? Well, it just got worse. It just got a lot worse. I dread the day, man. The day that foreclosures and evictions are allowed will be an incredibly dark and disturbing day and any politician who's not fighting to prevent this is part of the problem. I don't care what party I don't care what the hell else they've done. If they're not fighting to prevent this, at the very least we need a UBI. At the very least we need a UBI. To not do UBI at this point is like is like national suicide. You feel like the fabric of society is gonna come apart when you look at numbers like this. I mean, you already kinda of is. Dylan Radigan predicted social unrest in the wake of everything happening with COVID, and then what did we get? The spark was police brutality, but there's incredible social unrest. Add an economic crisis equal to or worse than the Great Depression now, how do we keep everything together? Especially when the government is not in any way shape or form representing us or fighting for us totally representing corporate interests totally corrupt rotten to its core what now I shudder when I think about it all right next Tucker Carlson did quite a sneaky segment here it's about the war in Afghanistan, and um, really, at its core, it's very deceptive. He's going to say the things that sound reasonable about, hey, let's get out of Afghanistan, but take note of the guy he's talking to. It's this guy right here. Now, many of you might already know what's up with this guy just from his face here. His name is Eric Prince. For those of you who don't know, I'm going to save his story until after this clip. And then you'll see, like, the stealth co-opting of anti-war-sounding language that's going on here. Watch.
3: Both Republicans and Democrats, fools all of them, on the House Armed Services Committee, have backed a new amendment to the annual defense authorization bill that would make it far harder for the president to bring American troops home permanently from Afghanistan as he has promised to do and tried to do for four years. Maybe his most consistent policy position, end the war in Afghanistan, but he can't because his generals and fools in Congress prevent him. Why is that? No one we know has spent more time in the country or knows it better than Eric Prince. He's chairman of the Frontier Resource Group. He joins us tonight Eric. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Tucker. It seems like the President has been thwarted once again, I'm not even keeping count, but of the number of times he has tried to accelerate troop withdrawal and he's been stopped by permanent Washington. What's happening here?
4: Look, uh, he keeps going to the same people that give the same advice that we it's a circular loop back for the same 19 years. We've gone through 32 troop rotations now, uh, so there's no continuity and there really is no plan. All that Washington can resort to is spending more money and more troops. His first national security team actually wanted him to send 70,000 more troops to Afghanistan. He's been trying to go the other way. And, you know, the, the, sadly, the, the public advice I offered the president in 2017 still applies. There is a way to rationalize U.S. presence there. If the U.S. pulls out everything completely, the Afghan government, the Afghan security forces will collapse and, uh, you know, it will be a, a true uh, terror state at that point. However, uh, you know, taking, letting veterans go back in, contract to the Afghan government, and provide them the essentials that they need at a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the numbers that are there now. Remember, you have about 4,500 U.S. troops there now, and you have about 25,000 contractors. Okay, For less than 6,000 contractors remaining, you can keep the Afghan government upright and effective the same way uh, that the U.S. did with the Flying Tigers helping defeat Japan. Right early in World War II, it's a way for the president to make good on his promise to end the U.S. war and not leave the Afghan government and the Afghan people hanging, uh, which I think would would satisfy everyone's goal. The problem is there's so much money that Congress appropriates to uh, the Pentagon, and it gets washed through all the congressional campaign coffers, uh, and it's a very unhealthy cycle. The more they keep troops there, you know, when you have uh, the, the generals going on to the, the boards of the largest defense contractors in
3: the country, uh, the cycle continues. So you floated this idea some years ago, you floated on this show, and uniform officers in the Pentagon said about trashing you and your reputation. Some of them, as you just noted, including the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went to take a seat on the board of Lockheed, a defense contractor. Why do we allow that in this country? Why did generals get to move from the Pentagon to defense contracting? Uh, That is a a law matter. That's not a matter of
4: uh, of opinion, Uh, but that's that's just what happens in in Washington Uh, and many of the same generals or the congressional staff go to work for defense contractors and it keeps a very unhealthy cycle. Look, if you are one of those parents of of one of the 4,500 that are still in Afghanistan, barely holding the line, kind of a a mobile target. You know, the other thing is, if you have 4,500 troops in country, less than 10% of those actually leave the wire, go outside the base to do anything. So there's really not enough even to do there other than play whack-a-mole once in a while. It's not enough to support the Afghans. What What a veteran contracted force could do is support the Afghans with medevac. You're seven times as likely to die if you're an Afghan soldier, if you get shot. So it is, it is a recipe for systemic collapse and the videos of a helicopter off the rooftop of the U.S. Embassy, just like you saw in Saigon in 75. I was only six yeah. when that happened. I still remember that. A, a veteran force going back in can prevent that from happening and still make good to the President's promise because we don't need to leave U.S. troops in Afghanistan for 70 years, like some have advocated, like we have in Korea, enough of the permanent war.
3: Yeah. The neocons... And the corruption of Washington that have done this. Eric Prince, I hope you prevail in the end. I hope reason prevails.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's rich. That is rich. Eric Prince is a neocon. He is a neocon. So, for those of you who don't know, this guy is the head of what was formerly known as Blackwater. Now, Blackwater is a private mercenary army that the Bush administration contracted with. So we had US soldiers in Iraq, but then we also had some private contractors, Blackwater, in Iraq. And a bunch of them were convicted of war crimes. They committed a massacre and murdered, assassinated innocent civilians in a place called Nisor Square. And um, Jeremy Scahill, I read his book, Blackwater, years ago, and, man, it is terrifying when you read what really goes on with this guy and with the group Blackwater. They, they had such bad press for so long because it was a group of war criminals that he ended up changing the name to, to Z, X-I, or something like that, and then he had to change it again, I think. And um, he's just trying now to get back into the good graces of Washington, D.C. And um, so now he's changing strategies. See, previously Eric Prince would go around – sounding like the neocon he is and the hawk that he is, and saying, like, yeah, we need to stay and keep doing these wars, but I think we should privatize the wars. He'd say it openly. Well, now he changed his strategy. Now he goes on Tucker, and he's like, I agree, Tucker. It is really bad that we're still at war in Afghanistan. We should totally pull out of Afghanistan. That would be wonderful. We should also go back in. And when I say that, I mean let me and my people go back in and pay us for it. This is really deceptive. What you just saw here. I mean, this is really gross. Um, so the argument is, hey, Trump keeps, you know, listening to the same old military people. Eric Prince is basically saying he should come to me. He should come to me. And he goes on to say, oftentimes he lets he like slips up and tells you what what's actually going on and what he really wants. He says, quote, there is a way to rationalize U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And he says, but you got to pull out all the troops. Pull them out. Pull them out. Pull them out but send in me and my mercenary army. And he says, it costs less, and there would be fewer people, so I don't know why we're not doing this. And then the richest part was, Tucker says something about like, the military-industrial complex and the revolving door and how corrupt it is, and Eric Prince is like, oh yeah, totally, totally. This guy got many no-bid contracts! He is the military-industrial complex. He's part of that military-industrial complex. It's just that Blackwater's not being used right now. So he's like switching up his strategy and pretending to be like anti-war, even though he's advocating staying in Afghanistan with a mercenary army, which is even worse because in many ways they're outside of the realm of international law. I mean, that doesn't matter because the U.S. ignores international law either way. But And the other part is, and Jeremy Scahill again lays this out in his book, it is disturbing connections to extreme fundamentalist Christianity as well as part of Blackwater. She want to go into Muslim countries with, a Christian fundamentalist army, a private mercenary for-profit army, and you think that's totally fine, and there's no problem with that whatsoever, and that taxpayer should pay him for this. We should be paying to have Blackwater in all these countries. Get out of here, man. This guy's not anti-war. This guy is a neocon. This guy is a war hawk. This guy wants to send his own mercenary army in, which is even more dangerous than our own military. And Tucker's acting like, yeah, yeah, this is anti-war, and I want reason to prevail. Reason is getting out of Afghanistan, full stop. That's it. No get out and then, in a weasley way, go back in with freaking uh, you know, mercenary armies. That's insane. So the question is, does Tucker know that he's advocating for endless war under a new banner and with new players, or is he just a sucker? and he's duped by a guy like Eric Prince. I think it's impossible that he doesn't understand what he just advocated for and what he's doing here. Because this is not anti-war. This is not anti-war. It's just not. It's not anti-war. To pull out U.S. troops but send our own mercenary army in there, funded by U.S. taxpayers, how is that anti-war? Anti-war is getting out full stop, not getting out and getting back in with private companies. So I, I think Tucker knows that what he's doing here is advocating for war under the guise of anti-war. And, and I think it's like, that's even more nefarious. Because at least you get honesty from the neocons who are like, yeah, we want endless war. Now you got Tucker and Eric Prince acting like, no, no, we want to end the wars. But they're actually for endless war. They're, it's in plain sight what they're doing. It's disgusting, man. This is, this is crazy. So, one of the worst segments I've ever seen, Jesus Christ. I can't believe anybody would fall for this, but people do. People do, and that's why I got to come out here and correct this because it's like who, who the hell else is going to really break this down? All right, now let me do the story on masks. So Tucker Carlson completely flipped his position on masks. Watch this.
3: Many schools that do plan to reopen will do so under a series of restrictions that have no basis of any kind in science. It's a kind of
0: bizarre
3: health theater. Students will be kept six feet apart. Everyone will have to wear a mask. Class size will be limited. In some schools, there will be scheduled bathroom breaks. Etc., etc., no sports. It's insulting. It's ridiculous. They're telling you masks don't work unless you work at a hospital? How does that work? Does mask effectiveness change based on what job you do? They're only useful if you're already sick? What? Coronavirus can spread from asymptomatic carriers. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Oh, wait, you're just too dumb to wear the mask. Okay, because they're really hard to put on. Of course, masks work, everyone knows that. Dozens of research papers have proved it. In South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, the rest of Asia, where coronavirus had to get under control, masks were key. So, look, we understand there's a shortage of masks. We understand only certain people should get them because it's a triage moment. We get it. But stop lying to us.
1: That's incredible. That's incredible. Now, why do you do this? How did this come about? The answer is actually very simple contrarianism it's all about contrarianism so when you did the previous segment i believe that was at the time when fauci and us government agencies were like masks don't work please nobody use masks in the general public because they don't work now why were they saying that they were saying it because um we were afraid of a mask shortage for our frontline workers who need them the most but instead of saying, "Hey, we need our masks for the frontline workers, so don't buy them right now." They lied and said masks don't work. And so, you know, they lost all credibility on that moving forward, and that really was such a that really was such an important moment because it was like the beginning of it was such an absurd thing to say that like then people started to question everything that was being, you know, put out there on COVID-19. And yeah, the government has nobody to blame for themselves for that. Fauci has nobody to blame for himself but himself for that the CDC, all of them who lied, World Health Organization, it was unacceptable. And they they were lying, period. They were lying. It was disgusting. It was wrong. Um, Now, today, we're hearing that, well, some schools are going to open up, some aren't, Trump's trying to force them all back, but some schools are opening with guidelines. And he explained some, six feet apart, masks, reduced class sizes, so on and so forth. And like, the connecting thread in all this stuff is that he wants to be against what the official line is. So the official line for a brief period of time was masks are bad. And so he was like, no, masks are good. The official line now is, hey, if we open the schools up, we've got to have reduced class sizes, six feet apart, and masks. And so he's like, no, that's crazy, bro. So it's always like whatever the official line is, I'm just going to say the opposite. So ultimately, like I said, it's mindless contrarianism because he contradicted himself there and he didn't even realize it on the one hand he was saying master obviously good months ago and then now he's like masks and six feet apart and reduced class sizes absurd anti-science it's pathetic it's pathetic and honestly this is a trend i've seen a lot more of recently um it's easy to make yourself feel like edgy and cool if you're just a default contrarian like whatever I feel the main sentiment is that most people agree with I'm just going to default to the opposite position it's like you know listen you guys won't be too surprised to learn that in in high school and college I was the argumentative kid who would like raise his hand and go back and forth with the teacher like I was that prick probably still am to a little bit but not as bad as I was back then and like yeah, there's something about I'm just going to be contrarian that makes somebody feel like, ooh, I'm edgy and I'm counterculture and I'm such a truth-teller. And it's like, actually, no, you're just a sheep in the other direction. Like, if you're the type of sheep who always agrees with the official line or always is with the majority, then you probably haven't really thought through these issues in any serious way. But, like, a contrarian is just the mirror image of that. You're just a sheep in the other way. I will default to official line wrong. And it's just so stupid. Like, fucking be consistent. Have, a, have an actual take on something. And, you know, who the hell knows what Tucker really believes? He was getting credit for warning Trump about the coronavirus early on. But then, very strangely, within a couple months of getting the praise for warning Trump about coronavirus, he started to change his tune on it. and started to sound like just like a standard conservative downplaying it in many respects. And that's what this is. That's what this is you know, saying if we return kids to school, we shouldn't have special measures. Really? We shouldn't have special measures if we return them to school. When we know the virus is still ripping through this country and we know the ways to prevent it. And Tucker from March was correct when he said, obviously masks work. Yes, they do. It's been proven. They work. So make up your goddamn mind, man, and stop with the mindless contrarianism. We get it that on Fox News, that actually might be very marketable because you got a bunch of standard doctrinaire right-wing clowns on Fox News. Hannity has never had an original thought in his entire goddamn life. His whole shtick is Republican right, Democrat wrong. Like that's it. That's his whole shtick. So I get it. What he's doing is like slightly newer for for Fox News, but like you look like an idiot. You look like an idiot. So, you know, maybe stop Alright, next. Mayor Pete is continuing to live up to the view of him that the left has. He's basically like the embodiment of the smug, coastal, liberal elitist. So here he is discussing his new book, (laughs) Try Not to Get Sick, as you watch this.
0: institutions, in each other, and trust around the world in America itself. Our democracy depends on high levels of trust, but social and political trust has been moving in the wrong direction. Looking at why, and wanting to explore the building blocks of the trust we're going to need in the years ahead, I decided to put pen to paper to try to start a new conversation about this issue going into the fall. So on October 6th, I'll be releasing a book with Live Right Publishing. The book is called Trust. America's Best Chance. We're also releasing an audiobook version that I'll narrate. In order to move on from this pandemic to deliver racial and economic justice to restore America's leadership role in the world, I think we need to pay much more specific attention to how trust is earned and how it can be regained after it's been damaged. A stronger level of trust could be both a cause and a result of a better American life. As of today, you can pre-order Trust Anywhere books are sold, so I'm hoping you'll check it out, and you'll see me talking about it in this space from time to time in the months ahead. And as we seek to support each other in our communities, I'm reminded of our own local, black-owned, woman-owned, independent bookstore right here in South Bend called Brain Layer Books. Now is a very important time to support the booksellers who educate and inspire our communities every day. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to talking more with you soon about trust. And how we can achieve
1: it together in our time. I crave death. Watching that, oh my God! The background music alone made it incredibly corny, cheesy, ridiculous. How how is it possible? like immediately live up to what your harshest critics have said about you Now he spoke how long was that clip oh let me i could actually tell you it was like a minute and 43 seconds he spoke for that amount of time and said nothing nothing you know there's a bunch of different kinds of trust there's three kinds of trust and we're going to build trust for the future and this is our best hope this is our best hope to go on and Trust can be both a cause and an effect of a better American life in the future. What are you saying, bro? What are you saying? What are you saying? Okay. This is probably some sort of thing to, you know, not just make money, but also it's a very common thing that you release books before you run for president. That happens all the time it's one of the like the early signs of like oh that person is interested in running for president that's why they wrote a book so it could be the same thing like he might want to run in 2024 2028 depending on i guess if Biden wins the election he probably wants to run again so i'm guessing that that plays a part of it but i you know it really depresses me that this guy is going to be a public figure likely for the rest of my life, I will be seeing Pete Buttigieg. I'll be seeing him. He's going to run for some other kind of office, I bet. He's definitely going to run for president again. He's going to be, the media loves this guy. They'll welcome him with open arms, and at the very least, he'll be some sort of contributor to, you know, one of these different mainstream outlets. And we're going to have to see this all the time. (laughs) The hokey, corny, say-something-without-saying-anything approach to politics that's just totally vapid and vacuous. I'm consistently amazed at his ability to move his mouth and say nothing. He doesn't speak in in concrete ways. He doesn't talk about policies like Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, Green New Deal, legalizing marijuana, all this stuff. Because he's not substance-based. He's ego-based. So he does stuff like this. By the way, there is a contingent of the American public that loves this stuff. Loves this stuff. I feel like... Suburban men and women of a certain age like either the like the uh, the generation X wine mom and soccer dad who are very like you know button- down polite society type people they look at a guy like Pete and they like yes
0: oh my God yeah he sounds like a politician yes. Say more words that don't mean anything good, sir. I love it. I love it so much.
1: Just the background music made me die inside a little bit. Trust. America's best chance. (laughs) We should do some sort of contest for, like, vapid neoliberal meaningless phrases. Hope. The path to the future. (laughs) <laughs> you know, really, the ultimate example of this is just the Tom Perez impression that I have. Yeah, I want
0: everybody to understand something. Here in the Democratic Party, we're for good things and we're against bad things, and we want to fight for good things and against bad things, and make sure that we bring meaning
1: to our future as as the the truth holds evermore. <laughs> This is what they do. They have nothing to say. They have nothing to say. Do you get that? They have nothing to say to fundamentally improve people's lives. And by the way, I, I've noticed the same thing in how race issues have been sanitized and corporatized now. Go listen to any mainstream voice talking about the death of George Floyd and what we should do in response to it. And it all, it's all interpersonal, individual, like... You know, you have to recognize your privilege and adjust accordingly, and we have to move forward in a way that brightens our future and expands our horizons to come together in an inclusive but diversified, tolerant space. And it's like, you're not saying anything! You're not saying anything! You want to know how you say stuff on politics? Politics, the word politics, part of that is policy. It's based on policy. So what are the policies to change this stuff? What are the policies? What are your policies around Trust America's best chance. There are no policies there. That's the point. That's the point. He doesn't believe in anything. He doesn't believe in anything. I'm going to die young, aren't
0: I? I'm getting worked up over this stuff. It's absurd.
1: All right, final story of the day. Actually, no, wrong, I'm gonna do two more. They'll be quick though, here we go. So the U.S. is actually acting on one of Trump's disturbing whims. The Trump administration has notified Congress that the U.S. is officially withdrawing from the World Health Organization. Now, am I saying that the World Health Organization is perfect? Am I saying they haven't made mistakes? Am I saying that, you know, they don't have problems? Of course not. Of course not. I think every international agency or body, no matter what, you know, field they're specifically involved in, I think they all have colossal issues that need to be addressed. That's a given. But the way he's responding to that fact is not the right way to respond to it. And also, by the way, it doesn't acknowledge, he would never acknowledge the fact that oftentimes we're the problem with these international bodies. We try to bully them and get our way. I mean, remember, guys, it was the International Criminal Court which told the United States, you have to stop sanctioning the medicine going into Iran. And know what we did in response to that? We pulled out of the International Criminal Court and we scolded them. So we're going to do what we want. To steal from Dave Chappelle when he was uh, President Black Bush, Trump's response was like, oh, you don't like that? Well, why don't you come sanction me with your army? Oh, wait, you don't have an army. So how about you? Shut the fuck up. That's basically Trump's response to the International Criminal Court saying you can't block medicine going into Iran. Stop it. We were just like, Haha. yes, we can. And screw you, International Criminal Court. So oftentimes, we're the problem with these international bodies. But like To just pull out of them, because what? They don't want to give us our way on absolutely everything when more than half the time we're probably wrong in asking for a certain thing? That's why you're pulling out of it? This has far-reaching global consequences. What this does is it does create a power vacuum, and nature abhors a vacuum. And so what you've seen recently is we are the empire on the way out. We're the superpower on the way out. And so we go in guns blazing to places when we don't like something. And look at how China is now on the rise and what China has done. China is doing the Belt and Road Initiative. And what that is is basically an empire through debt and investment. So, like, China steps into these developing countries and says, hey, what if we build up your infrastructure? Would that be cool? We could have maybe some sort of business dealing if if we do that? And And they're like, yeah, of course. So it's kind of like a Marshall Plan type situation. So they're... They're doing the more intelligent version of empire and are on the rise. As we have idiots running the U.S. and I'm not. Just so everybody knows, I'm not pro empire. I'm just objectively describing what's going on in the world right now. And what's going on in the world right now is U.S. leadership is so short-sighted and so stupid and and so impulsive that if we don't like something, like this is what Trump does. He pulls out of the World Health Organization. And I think the most important point is. I've done segments on this show talking about the difference. I think there's a difference between non-interventionism and isolationism. Non-interventionism just means, hey, let's not do any offensive wars. Let's only use our military for imminent defense of the nation. That's non-intervention. So it is a lack of doing intervention and invading countries and whatnot. That's non-intervention. I always said I wouldn't describe myself as an isolationist. Why? Because isolation has a negative connotation And when I hear isolationism, that's not just in the realm of foreign policy. That also crosses over into economic policy and trade, for example. And it also crosses over into stuff like Trump is doing right here. This is genuinely isolationist. You're going to pull out of the World Health Organization. You're going to pull out of it, not try to reform it, not try to improve it, not recognize that, hey, we're an international community. When dialogue breaks down, all we have left is violence. So he's not trying to fix it. He's like, I'm just going to pull out. Okay, well, that's isolationism. That's what that is. You're saying we're going to go it alone and screw the consequences. Well, there are going to be a lot of negative consequences to this. So listen, the League of Nations fell apart, and now we have the UN. The UN is horrendous in a thousand ways, but it's better than the alternative, which is total chaos, total mayhem, a breakdown of lines of communication between nation states, which historically is incredibly dangerous. It's so dangerous. You have to use negotiation, diplomacy, open lines of communication, because that's what adults do. If you don't have that, yes, it's much more likely there's gonna be a lot more violence moving forward. There's gonna be a lot more miscommunication, there's gonna be a lot more feuds, we're not gonna get along. That has consequences when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to trade, when it comes to a variety of issues. Immigration. So I mean this is just it's this is the exact kind of thing I would expect from Trump and it's something he definitely shouldn't do. Goes way too far, not productive at all, and it is yet again another issue where it's kind of like embarrassing on the world stage that he's like he thinks he's being a tough guy here. When in reality this is this has far-reaching consequences that he of course hasn't wrapped his mind around or thought about. All right, now the final story of the day. This next story is uh, almost too easy. I almost didn't cover it in the show because it's just too, like, I don't have anything to say about it. I just want to show you the headline and then you could fill in the blank in your own own mind because it speaks for itself. So the Wall Street Journal bureau chief says the following. The Ayn Rand Institute received a PPP loan of between $350,000 and $1 million. Now, most of my audience knows who Ayn Rand is. For those who don't, let me tell you. She's a very, very well-known writer, famous writer, um, and her whole thing is anarcho-capitalism, or, you know, what's currently understood in the U.S. context as libertarianism. Um, I've read a bunch of her stuff, and man, she was extreme. There, there were some essays she wrote where she said, "No, we do need some level of government, and the government should be, have be the court system, like because we need to have a place where we go to settle disputes, um, and so everybody, every country needs a court system." But that's pretty much it. Like that's what the government should just do: the court system, and that's it. Then there were other essays she wrote where she was like even the court system should be privatized and it should be voluntary donations for a court system. Now, of course, in typical Ayn Rand fashion, she, doesn't, she ignores like the consequences that paint her views in a negative respect. So if you have voluntary donations for a court system, who's gonna donate to that court system to keep it running? The people with all the money, the very, very rich people. So in a situation where the very, very rich people are the reasons why the courts are functioning, Do you think that those courts are going to be objective and maybe hear out somebody who was screwed over by one of those billionaires? Or will they side with the people who are giving them the money and keeping them running? They're always going to side with the billionaires. Or the overwhelming majority of the time side with the billionaires. So, like, she, she doesn't, she lives in this fantasy world where it's like everything's theory. In theory, X, Y, and Z should happen. Okay, but in practice, it doesn't. In practice, anarcho-capitalism is substituting one form of tyranny, government tyranny, with private corporate tyrannies. But in her mind, those don't count, because it's voluntary. It's voluntary for you to go work for the corporation, for you to sell your labor on the marketplace and have somebody lord over you and tell you what to do. Hey, you chose that. You chose that. So that kind of tyranny doesn't count. So, but, I mean... It's a strong stance against government spending. It's the ultimate small government position. Okay, so why the hell are you taking a PPP loan? A government loan between $350,000 and a million dollars. Now, people made the argument against Ayn Rand and against, like, you know, I think Ron Paul. Like, oh, Ron Paul accepts Social Security money. Ayn Rand lived off some government money towards the end of her life. So, you know, hypocrites. Now, the response that libertarians have to that is, yeah, but they did pay into that their entire lives through Social Security, through the social safety net. So, like, they're just getting back what they already paid in, so they're not really hypocrites. And they weren't given a choice to opt in or out to Social Security. So is it really, like, are you really burning them? No, they're just automatically as part of Social Security. So you didn't get them. They're not hypocrites. A PPP loan, you have to apply for. It is categorically different than the Social Security one. So they're actively choosing to get a government loan as their entire intellectual philosophy is arguing against stuff that the government does. They don't think the government should have the ability to do this kind of stuff. They want to rein it in. But then they go and apply for the loan. Beyond hypocritical, incredibly stupid, but right on brand. Cuz you know, I don't think I don't think there really are too many actual ideologues out there. They're just opportunists. These are people trying to get ahead like anybody else, taking any advantage they possibly can, government or not. And there is no real principled movement here. I'm not saying all libertarians are like this, because they're not. There are plenty of libertarians who are principled. But it sure as hell is not the people at the Ayn Rand Institute who applied for a government loan so they can continue bashing government loans. All right. We are done, baby. I love you all. I will see you on Monday. By the way, the show will not be Thursday next week. There will be a show on Monday the normal time and on Wednesday. So next week will be Monday and Wednesday. I'll tell you more at the time. Love you guys. Have a good one. Peace.